Can you name a company that has around 120 petabytes of traffic on its network every day? Let me give you a frame of reference for what a petabyte is. A terabyte holds 200,000 photos or mp3s, while a petabyte is 1,000 terabytes. That's a yacht of bytes. Actually, that's not true. A 1,000 petabytes is an exabyte, and a 1,000 exabytes is a zettabyte, and a 1,000 zettabytes is a yacht of byte. If you wanted to save a yacht of byte, you would need a data center as big as the states of Delaware and Rhode Island combined, and it would cost $100 trillion. What's up, everybody? Jen, ex-dividend investor here. Today in my 18th stock reveal video, I'll be doing a deep analysis of AT&T, my 8th largest dividend stock by portfolio value of the 25 I own. That means that after this, I only have 7 stocks to go. Also, if you're somebody who likes this video or AT&T, then dial that like button as a thank you to me for making this extensive deep analysis video. Please feel free to check out the timestamps in my description below if you want to jump straight to my portfolio as well as see screenshots of the 3M, McDonald's, and Coke dividend checks I received after I released my 3M video last week. Finally, if you want to chat with other dividend investors, then please join my dividend discord chat server. You can join with your phone after you download the discord app and type in capital C, lowercase r, lowercase r, lowercase p, 2, capital R, lowercase n, into the invite, or just click on the link in the description below from your browser. Okay. Now it's time for another deep analysis. AT&T, ticker T, is a 279 billion market cap, 171 billion revenue American multinational conglomerate and is the world's largest telecommunications company, the largest provider of mobile telephone services, the largest provider of fixed telephone services in the United States, and is also now an entertainment media company as well with their acquisition of Time Warner. That means they now umbrella DC Comics, which includes Batman, Superman, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, amongst others, and television hits like Two Broke Girls, The Big Bang Theory, and Rick and Morty, as well as pay TV blockbusters like HBO and their epic hit Game of Thrones, as well as news stations like CNN, and movie franchises including Harry Potter as well as Lord of the Rings. So they are now a massive content is king play and have incredible data assets all of which has launched them as an entertainment media powerhouse. Oh, and did I mention that they're a prestigious dividend aristocrat with over 35 years of consecutively increasing their dividend? Okay, let's review who the significant institutional holders of AT&T stock are. The top institutional shareholder of AT&T is Vanguard, holding about 571 million shares valued at almost $22 billion, which means they own almost 8% of it, followed by BlackRock and State Street. The largest insider I found was Randall Stevenson, their CEO, who has around 1.3 million shares. That means he owns 0.018% of AT&T. For reference, I own 0.00003197387% of AT&T. Randall's shares yield around $2.6 million every year. Okay, let's see how they and some of the key industry leaders are ranked by market cap and number of wireless subscribers. So here we see that number one is AT&T at a market cap of $282 billion with 163 million subscribers. Next is Verizon at $253 billion and 119 million subscribers. Number three is T-Mobile at $65 billion and 83 million subscribers. And finally number four is Sprint at $21 billion market cap with 55 million subscribers. 
Let's compare AT&T to their closest competitor, Verizon. Of course, AT&T has evolved into media entertainment, but we will focus on where they still generate the most revenue, which is their wireless network. Verizon is an American multinational telecommunications conglomerate with around $131 billion in revenue and was founded in the 1980s after AT&T's Bell system was broken apart by the Justice Department. AT&T is in the communications services sector and they span wireless, media, and a variety of other industries. Let's look at where AT&T and Verizon are on the Fortune 500. So we see that AT&T is ranked at 9 and Verizon is ranked at 19, so both are considered massive U.S. companies. Now let's jump into history of AT&T. To understand AT&T, we need to go way back in time to 1847, to Scotland, where Alexander Graham Bell was born. As a boy, he had a talent for art, poetry, and music. With no formal training, he mastered the piano and became the family's pianist. Despite being normally quiet and introspective, he would entertain family guests with voice tricks akin to ventriloquism. Mastering and understanding sound became increasingly fascinating to Bell, who was deeply affected by his mother, who was gradually going deaf. His grandfather and father were both speech teachers, called teachers of elocution at the time. His father published a book on how to instruct deaf people to be able to read other people's lips, a skill Alexander quickly learned. He had a keen wit, but his grades in school were weak, and he often didn't even go to his classes. Both of Bell's brothers died of tuberculosis, a fatal disease that attacks the lungs, so his parents convinced him to move to find a healthier climate. So Alexander Graham Bell moved to Canada and then to Massachusetts. There he opened a school which attracted many deaf pupils and he actually tutored Helen Keller who came to him as a young child unable to see, hear, or speak. Bell explored different fascinating ways he could help deaf children hear better. He experimented with a human ear and attached bones, magnets, smoked glass, and other things. That's when a breakthrough hit him that led to the telephone that an electric current can be made to change its force just as the pressure of air varies during sound production. He experimented with tuning reeds, magnets, and electricity to make a receiver and a transmitter. His first prototype device was made of thin disks in front of an electromagnet that was able to send and receive sounds, but not clear speech. On February 14, 1876, Bell's attorney filed for a patent which would give him the right to make and sell his invention for a set number of years. Ironically, that same day, someone named Alicia Day filed a patent caveat, which is an intention to invent a similar device, but without having something tangible you could physically review. But the U.S. Patent Office granted Bell the patent for the electric speaking telephone on March 7, 1876. It turned out to be the most valuable single patent ever issued, and it opened a new age in communications technology. Bell continued his experiments to improve his telephone's quality. Three days after the patent was issued, Bell and his assistant Watson were testing their updated prototype. Bell was in one room and Watson was in the other. Bell spoke the following into their transmitter. Watson, come here, I want you. Watson burst into the room after hearing Bell's voice through the receiver. In 1877, Alexander Graham Bell established the Bell Telephone Company and it grew quickly. In 1885, Alexander formed a subsidiary of Bell Telephone Company and gave it the charter to build and operate long-distance telephones. They called that new subsidiary American Telephone and Telegraph, aka AT&T. Bell Telephone Company and its subsidiary AT&T quickly became the primary telephone company in the U.S. Telephone lines and telephones exploded in growth in the U.S. 
Just one year later, in 1886, more than 150,000 people in the U.S. owned telephones. Over the next 18 years, the Bell Telephone Company faced 587 court challenges to its patents, including five that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, but none was successful in establishing priority over the original Bell patent. AT&T maintained a monopoly on telephone service in the United States until antitrust regulators split the company in the early 1980s, requiring AT&T to divest its regional subsidiaries and turning them each into individual companies. These new companies were known as regional Bell operating companies, or more informally as Baby Bells. AT&T continued to operate long-distance services, but as a result of this breakup, faced competition from new competitors such as MCI and Sprint. AT&T agreed to divest its local telephone operations, but retained its long-distance R&D and manufacturing arms, and that's how SBC Communications, aka Southwestern Bell, was born. But things came full circle when in 2005, SBC acquired AT&T Corp and took on their brand name. In 2006, AT&T acquired Singular Wireless. Around this time, Apple was looking to find a wireless telecommunications partner for their yet-to-be-released iPhone. Many telecom companies were scared off by Apple's reputation for controlling every aspect of things. But in 2005, Singular CEO Stan Sigman signed a secretive deal with Apple before even seeing any designs or prototypes of the phone. AT&T's CEO, Randall Stevenson, who was then the company's chief operating officer, supported the idea of teaming up with Apple on their new secretive phone. He later said, we're not betting on the handset, we're betting on Jobs, aka Steve Jobs. AT&T became the exclusive carrier of the smartphone in its first years through their acquisition of Singular Wireless, and they phased out the Singular brand a few months before the first iPhone hit stores. And that allowed AT&T to lead one of the most significant transformations in communications since the invention of the telephone, which was the birth of the mobile internet. In 2013, AT&T bought Cricket to give customers in the growing prepaid market more access to mobile internet services. In 2015, they bought two Mexican wireless companies and then acquired DirecTV, making them the world's largest pay TV provider. In 2018, they acquired Time Warner, which gave them some of the incredible IP I previously mentioned. Also in 2018, AT&T acquired AppNexus. AppNexus operated one of the few major ad exchange businesses, essentially a big digital marketplace where digital ad inventory can be bought and sold. So when you click on a website and some ad shows up which is strangely relevant to you, what is happening in the background is that thousands of advertisers are bidding to get space on the website to show you the ad that is targeted for you, and AppNexus is that digital marketplace that advertisers go to to do their bidding and buying. So AppNexus enabled advertisers to place ads on websites and allows web publishers to monetize their websites. AppNexus was one of the few real competitors to Google and Facebook in the ad space. After AT&T acquired AppNexus, they rebranded them and combined them with their existing internal analytics groups into a new division they called Xander. So while both acquisitions of Time Warner and AppNexus were a decent amount of debt for AT&T, I think in the long term that both moves were brilliant. Now AT&T needs to prove that they can monetize their assets appropriately, and I'm betting they will. Then in September of 2019, an activist investor called Elliott Management, run by billionaire investor Paul Singer, published a letter outlining a proposal for a value creation opportunity at AT&T. Elliott Management announced that they own $3.2 billion of AT&T stock, which is a 1.2% equity interest, and they said that AT&T could increase its share value through a variety of actions. 
I found an article from 2017 that said in the previous five years, Elliot had launched activist campaigns at more than 50 companies in at least a dozen countries. During that span, their battle with Samsung is the only one that went all the way to a vote and the only one in which Elliott management didn't get what it wanted, which shows just how effective Elliott is at pressuring management to agree to its demands. Elliott's assets under management are around $40 billion, making it more than twice the size of the second biggest activist hedge fund, Dan Loeb's Third Point. Elliott's capital, along with their 400-person staff, has made them almost impossible to beat. Warren Buffett learned that the hard way when Elliott used its financial might to successfully block Berkshire Hathaway's bid for energy company Encore by buying up company debt and pledging to exercise its creditor veto right. I recommend you read their fascinating letter, which I'll include a link to in my description below. And it's in moments like these that CEOs need to prove their mettle. So what did AT&T's CEO Randall Stevenson do? Well, instead of attacking Elliott, Stevenson used his negotiating skills to satisfy Elliott without giving up his vision for AT&T, nor changing his goal to be succeeded by current AT&T president John Stanky. Under the deal, Stevenson and his team agreed to stop making big acquisitions, which I like as it hopefully means no more additional big debt, and they said they would reevaluate both the large and small deals they have already made, attempting to find investor options. They also agreed to a variety of spending and profit targets, as well as agreed to keep Stevenson in place until the end of 2020. So Elliott wins, as they basically always do, and AT&T also wins. And most importantly, I believe shareholders win with these actions. I think this graph from Elliott Management shows some of the upside potential for AT&T. Today, big mutual funds hardly have AT&T in them and instead are filled with stable growth stocks. Imagine if or once AT&T turns things around, how the big mutual funds could rush to get their shares of AT&T in their portfolios again and the resulting upside for the stock that would potentially ensue. Okay, let's look at some of AT&T's core business strategies. AT&T has a broad strategic vision to unite communications and entertainment. They have a variety of strategies they are pursuing to make that vision a reality. First, AT&T reorganized their business segments into the following. Number one is mobility, and is also known as communications, and is their largest segment by revenues and EBITDA. Mobility provides nationwide wireless service and equipment. This segment accounted for approximately 84% of their 2018 total segment operating revenues compared to 94% in 2017. Their strategy in mobility is to continue to add subscribers and increase revenues and roll out 5G to more cities. This unit was recognized as having the number one US wireless network. Their number two segment is Warner Media, which includes Turner Cable Television Networks, HBO, and Warner Brothers Film and Television Production. This segment produces and distributes feature films, television, gaming, and other content over various physical and digital formats. A key goal of Warner Media is to grow their new streaming HBO services. HBO Now offers not one, but two streaming options, HBO Go and HBO Now. Each comes with different pricing and availability, but they both have the same awesome content. HBO Now is an a la carte streaming option, and HBO Go is an on-the-go feature that comes with cable subscription through something like Comcast or with Amazon Prime. HBO Now costs around $15 a month. HBO Go is technically free, but you need an existing HBO subscription from your cable provider to use it. And normally HBO is a premium channel that costs an additional $10 to $18 per month, depending on providers and promotions and such. Their number three segment is Business Wireline, which represents IP-based strategic services as well as traditional voice and data services to businesses. 
Here their goal is to deliver solid margins through automation, cost reductions, and new platforms for customers. Their number four segment is the entertainment group, which is their video and broadband business, which provides video, internet, and voice communication services to residential customers. They've been aggressively investing in the entertainment group for the past several years, including building out their fiber footprint. Fiber is the backbone of their network and key for their plans for 5G. Their strategic goals here are to expand their fiber network to reach more customer locations. Their fifth segment is Latin America. This segment provides entertainment and wireless services outside of the US. This segment contains Vrio, which provides TV video services primarily to residential customers using satellite technology in Latin America. This segment also includes wireless service and equipment they provide to customers in Mexico. Their Latin America business had a very solid 2018. Vrio continued to grow subscribers and generate positive cash flow. In Mexico, they added 3.2 million mobile subscribers last year. Over the last few years, they finished building a premier nationwide LTE network in Mexico. This should mean positive EBITDA going forward, now that the big costs are done. Their goals include maintaining subscriber growth and increasing revenues, and to continue to generate strong cash flows, supported by technology-driven cost reduction efforts such as increased automation and self-service platforms. They want to expand DirecTV Go to new regions. For Mexico Wireless, they want to sustain subscriber growth across postpaid and prepaid. And finally, their number six segment is Xander, their newest business segment, which is already contributing strong revenue and EBITDA growth and which significantly deepened their data analytics capabilities. Their strategic goal with Xander is to create a next-gen advertising platform to serve relevant targeted advertising to better engage consumers across all screens. So that means that when I'm accessing their content, I make it served ads about video games or about where I can get wheels for my new Lambo. Okay, that was a lot. I don't have a Lambo. But if I did, they would serve up those types of ads that are relevant to my demographic and psychographic makeup. Another core strategy of AT&T's are around cost reductions. They have set a 2020 target of an additional 4% in cost reductions, or about $1.5 billion, driven primarily by lower labor-related costs and corporate overhead. Another is of outstanding share retirements. AT&T began retiring shares in the fourth quarter. The company expects these share retirements will help offset the impact of earnings per share in the fourth quarter from HBO Max investments. They entered into a $4 billion accelerated share repurchase agreement to retire about 100 million shares in the first quarter of 2020. Capital allocation is another important strategy for AT&T. They plan to continue to invest in both capital and content while also continuing modest annual dividend growth. They recently approved a 2% increase to their dividend, which is par for the course for them. A final strategy of AT&T's is one of debt reduction deleveraging. The company is enabling its deleveraging goals with an asset monetization program that is well ahead of target. At the beginning of 2019, AT&T indicated that they plan to monetize around $7 billion of their non-core assets. With the completion of the recent $4.5 billion sale of a preferred equity interest in a subsidiary that holds cell tower assets, AT&T has now completed a net $15 billion in asset monetization initiatives this year. It has also announced nearly $4 billion in monetization initiatives that are expected to close in 2020. By the end of 2022, AT&T expects to have retired 100% of the debt they took to fund the acquisition of Time Warner and have plans to reach a net debt to adjusted EBITDA ratio in the 2x to 2.25x range, which should help its debt ratings. AT&T remains a profitable company, even as its paid television business struggles. 
DirecTV has lost about 2.5 million subscribers in 2019 alone, following a 2018 that saw them lose another 1.2 million paying customers. So while I really like the app Nexus and Time Warner buys, I feel the DirecTV buy was a strategic and costly mistake. If I were at AT&T, I would advocate for them to sell DirecTV to someone like Dish Network. AT&T is continuing to be introspective of its portfolio of businesses in order to identify asset monetization opportunities so they can hit their target of $5 billion to $10 billion in 2020. Potential other sales include things like their real estate, their regional sports networks, and some cell towers. AT&T should be able to monetize their ownership in Central European media as well as from their Puerto Rican wireless businesses. AT&T also recently raised over a billion dollars from a preferred equity offering. So all of these actions and potential actions excite me. Okay, let's jump into the financials. There are four key financial areas I like to understand when I'm analyzing a business. And they are number one, is the company growing? Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Number three, do they have too much debt? And number four, how is their profitability? Let's start with number one. There are six main things I like to review when answering the question, is a company growing? And they are number one, is revenue growing? Number two, are earnings growing? Number three, is equity growing? Number four, is cash flow growing? Number five, is the dividend growing? And number six, is the stock price growing? So let's start with number one of six, is revenue growing? Here we see that AT&T's revenue for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was about $182 billion, an 11% increase year over year. Their 2020 estimate is at $182 billion as well. Verizon's revenue for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was about $131 billion, a 0.6% increase year over year. And their 2020 estimate is at $133 billion. I like the general sales trends other than the 2020 estimates. Let's make sure we understand AT&T's revenue by segment. We see that operating revenues decreased in 2017 relative to 2016, driven by declines in legacy voice and data products, shifts to unlimited wireless plans and lower wireless hand sales and upgrades, and was partially offset by growth in advanced IP services. The decrease in 2018 relative to 2017 was primarily due to their policy election to no longer include USF fees in revenues, shift to over-the-top aka OTT video offerings, and continued declines in legacy voice and data products and linear video, partially offset by higher wireless service and equipment revenues from increased postpaid smartphone sales. Let's look at how their wireless subscriber trends have been. We see an overall positive trend in wireless subscribers, mostly from connected devices. Now let's see how their net income is trending. So on to number two of six, are earnings growing? AT&T's net income for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 16.4 billion, a 51% decline year over year. Verizon's net income for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 16.1 billion, a 50% decline year over year. So fairly similar performance for both of them, and I'd expect AT&T's to start improving if their cost-cutting and growth initiatives work. Okay, on to number three of six, is equity growing? Here we see that AT&T's shareholders' equity is at $194.3 billion, and Verizon's shareholder equity is at $60.3 billion. I like AT&T's equity growth trends here, and they hold a large chunk of basically increasing equity. Okay, let's move on. So number four of six, is free cash flow growing? To answer the question, is a company growing? Please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more about cash flow. I pulled this data from Morningstar. 
We see that AT&T has a crazy amount of free cash flow at 29 billion for their trailing 12 months, and it's a nice trend line which is growing year over year. Verizon also is showing nice growth. In their 10K, AT&T mentioned that they have planned to invest about 23 billion of capital into their growth areas, and even after making those investments, they expect to generate free cash flow in the 26 billion range this year. Even after paying more than 14 billion in dividends, they expect to have about $12 billion of discretionary cash flow, which is earmarked for paying down their debt from the Time Warner acquisition. AT&T also remains on track to hit its 2019 net-to-debt adjusted EBITDA ratio target in the 2.5x range. It expects a leverage ratio of between 2x to 2.25x by the end of 2022. So they're continuing to delever, which I'm glad to see. Okay, now let's move on to number 5 of 6, is the dividend growing. In 2013, AT&T paid out a total of $9.69 billion in dividends. To put this figure into perspective, it comes out to roughly $26.5 million per day, or just about $307 returned to shareholders every second. AT&T's dividend payout is larger than many nations' annual GDP. Here we see that both AT&T and Verizon stock price has gone up in the last 365 days, as depicted by a green sparkline graph in the spreadsheet. AT&T's dividend is $2.04 versus Verizon's at $2.41. AT&T's three-year dividend catcher is a poor 2.1% compared to Verizon's, which is slightly better, but also weak at 2.3%. AT&T's five-year dividend catcher is a poor 2.1% compared to Verizon's 2.7%, which is also subpar. And note that AT&T recently just increased their dividend, which we'll be paying out in a few months. AT&T's 10-year dividend cash remains weak at 2.2% compared to Verizon's at 2.9%. So these aren't great dividend growth metrics, but AT&T's delicious starting yield at over 5% is a big reason why people jump onto AT&T. Their dividend yield is the highest among the Dow 30. Verizon is at 3.96%, which is nice, but not great. So if you want cash now, then AT&T is worth considering. I like it to help balance out my portfolio, which is heavily weighted towards future growth as opposed to yield now, so it is a bit of a current yield hedge for me. I like that optionality of being able to take cash now for my investments if I wanted, as well as belief in their long-term stock appreciation potential, as opposed to some of my plays which are great long-term plays at the sacrifice of no short-term optionality. AT&T's 10-year estimated yield on costs is 6.55% compared to Verizon's at 5.12%. AT&T's 30-year estimated yield on costs is 10.24% compared to Verizon at 9.34%. So nothing to write home about. But AT&T does have something to write home about, which is an impressive 35 years of consecutively increasing their dividend versus Verizon at 15. Rockstar AT&T, Rockstar. They both have healthy payout ratios at under 60%. And as always, don't use any of these numbers to make any investing decisions and double check all info presented. Now let's see how their shares outstanding have trended over time. I thought it'd be helpful to first clarify a few things about shares outstanding. Shares outstanding are basically how many total shares are held by all shareholders. Now the astute investor might wonder why the number of shares outstanding fluctuate up or down. While the number of shares outstanding will increase if the company issues additional shares for equity financing, it can also come from exercising employee stock options. In fact, John Core, a professor of accounting at Wharton, and S.P. Kothari, a professor of accounting at MIT, published a paper called The Economic Dilution of Employee Stock Options, Diluted EPS for Valuation and Financial Reporting, 
which basically said that the current method of accounting for the dilutive effects of outstanding employee stock options understates their dilutive effect by about 50% and thus overstates earning per share. So you may want to research and incorporate that dilution aspect into your stock evaluations, or you may find that your prices might be inflated relative to their real value. Outstanding shares will decrease if the company buys back its shares under a share repurchase program. So why would they issue more shares for equity financing? Well, companies sometimes need more money than they have in order to grow or to continue operating. So to get this new money, there are basically two paths they can go down. Number one, they can take on debt, or number two, they can issue equity, aka shares. Path number one is called debt financing. Debt comes from borrowing funds which are required to be repaid at a later date. Common types of debt are loans and credit. Issuing corporate bonds is a way they can raise capital. A bond functions as a loan between an investor and a company. The investor agrees to give the corporation a specific amount of money for a specific period of time in exchange for periodic interest payments at designated intervals. Now the benefit of debt financing is that it allows a business to leverage a small amount of money into a much larger amount, enabling more rapid growth than it might otherwise be possible. Another benefit is that debt payments are generally tax deductible. The downside of debt is that you obviously have to pay back interest, and debt payments must be made regardless of if you are making money or not. Path number two to get more money is equity financing. Equity financing involves the sale of the company's stock and giving a portion of the ownership of the company to investors in exchange for cash. The main benefit of equity financing is that you don't have to repay anyone. However, like everything, it has its own downsides. Shareholders buy stock to own a small amount of a business. That business is supposed to generate profits so the stock can be at a healthy valuation and can do things like pay dividends. Equity financing is a greater risk to the investor than debt financing is to the lender, so the cost of equity is often higher than the cost of debt. Here we see that AT&T increased their shares outstanding from $3.38 billion to $7.36, a 117% increase in 13 years. Similarly, Verizon went from 2.82 billion shares outstanding to 4.14 billion shares outstanding, which is an increase of 47% over 13 years. Generally speaking, I don't like to see shares outstanding increase like that. Let's look at their total returns. So number six of six is the stock price growing. Let's compare AT&T to Verizon and to the S&P 500 using Dividend Channel's total returns drip calculator. This models what would have happened if you invested 10K around 24 years ago into AT&T, Verizon, and the S&P 500, which was the longest duration of data their calculator allowed. This assumes you reinvest dividends. We see that your 10K in AT&T would have turned into 24K, 141% return. With Verizon, your 10K would have turned into a much better 69K, a 586% return. And you would have fared the best with the S&P 500, with your 10K turning into 85K, a 754% return. So you see why Elliott got involved. Okay, now let's jump on to number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Which is asking if it can cover its short-term debt obligations. I like to use the current ratio to determine that. It is important to compare ratios and most metrics in the same industry. A ratio higher than one indicates that a company will have a high chance of being able to pay off its shorter term debt, whereas a ratio of less than one indicates that a company may not be able to pay off its shorter term debt. So the higher the ratio, the more liquid the company is. I like to see ratios between 1.5 and 3. So we see that AT&T's current ratio is 0.74 compared to the industry median 1.07 and is ranked lower than 73% of the industry. We see Verizon's current ratio is 0.89 compared to the industry median 1.07 and is ranked lower than 61% of the industry. 
So Verizon is doing slightly better than AT&T, and neither are too alarming. The number three main item I like to look at when analyzing a business is if it is taken on too much debt using the debt to equity ratio. We see that AT&T's debt to equity is 0.79 compared to the industry median 0.58 and is ranked lower than 66% of their industry. Verizon's debt to equity is 1.99 compared to the industry median 0.58 and is ranked lower than 86% of their industry. So AT&T is doing better than Verizon, but neither are doing great. Remember, debt to equity is total liabilities divided by total equity. If the ratio is greater than one, the majority of assets are financed through debt. If it is smaller than one, assets are primarily financed through equity. I like to see between one to 1.5. A high debt to equity ratio is often associated with more risk as it can mean a business is pushing for fast growth with debt. That being said, the appropriate debt to equity ratio varies depending on the industry because some industries use more debt financing than others. Capital intensive industries often have higher ratios. Well then let's see if we think they can cover their interest payments. So let's see if EBIT is at a reasonable level. We see that AT&T's EBIT for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 28.8 billion, a 36% increase year over year. Verizon's EBIT for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 24.46 billion, a 10% decline year over year. So AT&T has trended better in the last year and overall is on a decent trend. I normally like to see EBIT greater than or equal to three times net interest, and checking their income statements, I find that both of them cover. Okay, the number four item I like to look at when analyzing a business is to understand their profitability. Let's look at return on equity, or their earnings power. Normally, I expect to see 10 to 15% to cover the cost of capital and make money for shareholders, but the more the better. ROE tells us how much profit a company makes for every dollar it has in shareholder equity. Watch my 3M video to learn about why Warren Buffett looks at ROE and feels it's important to utilize when evaluating companies. So ROE is the income that is being generated as a percentage of shareholders' equity, also known as book value. We see that AT&T's ROE is 8.4% versus industry median 6.1%, which is 59% higher than the industry. Verizon's ROE is an awesome 28% versus the industry median 6%, which makes it ranked higher than 90% of the industry. So Verizon is really shining here. Okay, let's look at another measure of profitability, return on assets. ROA will tell us how efficiently a company is extracting profit from their assets. Return on assets is a measure of how well a company takes all the money it has and uses that to make more money. It's a metric which is used to calculate management's effectiveness to understand how much profit a company earns for every dollar of its assets. The higher the ROA, the higher the asset efficiency. ROAs over 5% are generally what I look for. Here we see that AT&T's ROA is 3.01% versus the industry median 2.01%, which ranks them higher than 50% of the industry, so just okay. Verizon's ROA is 5.77% versus the industry median 2.01%, which ranks them nicely higher than 75% of the industry. The next profitability metric we'll look at is net margin. Net profit margins vary depending on the type of industry you're in. Watch my previous videos for more details. We see that AT&T's net margin is 8.97% versus industry median 3.45%, which ranks them higher than 70% of the industry. Verizon's net margin is 12.3% versus industry median 3.45%, which makes them ranked higher than 79% of the industry. So they're both doing okay, with the edge going to Verizon. Okay, let's look at one final profitability measure, which is earnings per share, or EPS. EPS is a company's profit divided by the number of common shares outstanding. EPS shows how much money a company makes for each share of its stock. 
A higher EPS often means that people will pay more for a company due to their higher profits. You also might want to calculate diluted EPS rather than basic EPS. Here we see some patches for both of them, with fairly similar volatile trends, with increases from 2009, generally speaking, though AT&T has been on a downtrend recently. AT&T's EPS for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $2.21 a 58% decline year-over-year. Year. Verizon's earning per share for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $3.88, a 50.6% decline year-over-year. Year. Okay, let's move from their financials to their community involvement, charitable giving, and their environmental, social, and governance work. ATT has a variety of great sustainability goals, including that they want to reduce their 1GHG emissions 20% by 2020, they want to reduce electricity consumption 60% by 2020, they are looking to expand their alternative energy usage. They are looking to collect 200 million devices for reuse, refurbishment, or recycling by end of year 2020. And they have so far reached 87% of their goal to hire 20,000 veterans. AT&T is committed to hiring veterans into its workforce because they feel that military service has uniquely equipped veterans with teamwork capabilities, critical thinking, and problem-solving skills. They have created a program called Empower, which offers veterans training opportunities, counselors, and mentors soft skills coaching, job placement assistance, and more. This program allows veterans and veteran spouses to learn the technical skills needed to succeed in a tech-based career in less than six months. AT&T is also keen on improving their diversity. They report on a variety of employee demographics, including percent of males versus females, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, age, and other breakdowns. They feel they get power through their diversity. They are also hiring individuals with disabilities and LGBTQ individuals. Okay, now let's move on to their executive leadership team. Their exec team has an average tenure of around 25 years, which is incredible. Some of them came up through companies they acquired, which I also like to see. A key gauge for me on how this management team will be is if they can keep their commitments they've made in terms of outcomes over the next few years. Let's look at AT&T's CEO, Randall Stevenson. Randall was named CEO in 2007. Since he joined, he has transformed the company to become a modern media company. Under his leadership, they acquired Time Warner, DirecTV, and Xander, amongst others. He started his career with Southwestern Bell in 1982. Okay, one way we can assess the CEO is on how his stock has done since he has taken office. Here we see AT&T in black, Verizon in blue, and Spy in purple. Unfortunately, we see that AT&T has significantly underperformed both Verizon and Spy. This is no doubt why Elliott Management believed that they needed to shake things up at AT&T. At the end of the day, your performance over a period of time is reflective of your value to a company. So I look forward to, and expect, the stock to go up. And as always, this is not a recommendation, nor should you take this as financial advice. You must always do your own research, double-checking everything, and then making a decision outside of anything I communicate or don't communicate. Okay, let's jump into concerns and risks. There are a variety of risks that I feel it's important to be aware of. Interest rates could pose a risk. If the Fed starts on a path of increases, it could be challenging for AT&T to deal with their debt load, which is one of the biggest risks which I'm concerned about. Their debt level combined with their low dividend casher are a couple of the main reasons why I was historically turned off to AT&T, but now I'm willing to take my chances with them given the potential upside combined with the stability I feel they have. So it's good that they're focused on driving down debt right now, and I don't want to see them miss their 2022 date to retire their Time Warner debt as they committed. A risk they mentioned in their recent 10K was that adverse changes in medical costs could materially increase their costs. Adoption of new software-based technologies may involve quality issues and could increase their capital costs. 
Another risk is if AT&T management can't successfully monetize and capitalize on Time Warner and or their other acquisitions. There are huge expectations here, so now management needs to deliver. If AT&T can't improve their execution and operational activities, then I fear the business and stock will suffer. One issue I've heard is that they've become too bureaucratic and slow, which is common for an older company the size of AT&T. They need to regain their agility. They need to let their core acquisitions operate as they used to, not force them into AT&T's mold. For example, AppNexus. If they let AppNexus run and they just help them grow with cash infusions and they just let them operate their own way, then it will flourish. Otherwise, I fear AT&T will not get the benefits that they and us shareholders want. AT&T needs to win on 5G. If they don't make the appropriate investments, they risk market share loss to companies like Verizon. There is a risk that they don't have the right management in place. AT&T has some brilliant talent, so they need to ensure that they have the right people in the right places. They need to keep their best talent, and they need to continue to attract the best of the best. There is a risk that their streaming strategy with HBO Max won't flourish against things like Disney Plus and the plethora of streaming competition out there. One concern I have when I hear about cost cutting is that it will go too deep, into muscle, rather than just fat. Changes in tax laws and unanticipated tax liabilities could adversely affect the taxes they pay and their profitability. Increasing regulatory issues may adversely impact them. From their 10K, they mentioned continuing growth in and the converging nature of wireless, video, and broadband services will require them to deploy increasing amounts of capital and require ongoing access to spectrum in order to provide valuable services to their customers. Court cutting and ongoing changes in the U.S. television industry and consumer viewing patterns could materially adversely affect their operating results. And that's a big concern of mine. Litigation or legal proceedings could expose them to significant liabilities and damage their reputation. Finally, the competitors they face in all their business segments are all risks to be aware of as they are constantly aiming to take market share. So those are some of the risks I thought of, but dive into their annual reports in Google if you are so inclined to be more thorough. So big question, is it worth buying at today's price? Please watch my 3M video if you are interested in learning more about how you can value a business and more details about how you can use discounted cash flow to estimate how much a stock or business is worth paying for. Let's see how the default DCF values compare for AT&T and Verizon using Guru Focus's DCF calculator. We see that it says that AT&T's fair value is $24.79 at its share price of $38.26, which is a negative 54% margin of safety. It has Verizon's fair value at $41.63 versus its share price of $60.81, a negative 46% margin of safety. So this estimator is saying they're both too pricey. Let's look at how their PEs have trended over time as another gauge of how pricey they are. Watch my previous videos to learn some nuance about PEs and what I expect to see in different sectors and industries. My generic rule of thumb is that I get more compelled to buy when PEs are under 15. We see that AT&T's PE is 17.2 versus an industry median 18.44, and they have a forward PE of 10.6, which ranks them higher than 52% of their industry. Verizon's PE is 15.6 versus an industry median 18.44 and a forward PE of 12.3, which ranks them higher than 60% of the industry. So Verizon is more compelling here, though AT&T's forward PE looks better and is at a point that if they hit I would strongly consider buying more. Watch my AbbVie video if you want to learn more about the S&P 500 PE ratios. Okay, another thing that you might want to look at is how their dividend yield has trended over time as an input into your buying decisions. Here are the last 10 years of dividend yield trends for AT&T and Verizon. 
AT&T's dividend yield is 5.33% and Verizon's at 4.05%. So both are great dividend yields for a large company, with AT&T's looking delicious. Around these levels of yield is where I start getting concerned if they go much higher. If you want to learn some nuance on how I read this chart, then watch my Kimberly Clark video. We see that both of them have been trending relatively sideways, with Verizon looking a bit less compelling than AT&T as its yield has slightly trended down. Though AT&T's trended down at the very end there. Okay, let's look at what analysts at MarketBeat said about AT&T and Verizon. So we see that AT&T's consensus rating today is a hold, and six months ago it was a buy. The share price today is $38.26 compared to a consensus target of $39.22 which is a 2.5% upside. Verizon's consensus rating today is a hold. Six months ago, it was also a hold. Share price today is $60.81 versus a consensus target of $63.56, which is a 4.5% upside. So this means that analysts see short-term upside for both of them, and they are more bullish on Verizon. Let's take a look at recent insider trading to see if we see any big red flags. So we see a variety of transactions by their officers and directors, but nothing jumps out as disconcerting or material to me. Please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more about how to read a form for dealing with insider trading. So what's a good price for AT&T? When did I buy it? So as I've mentioned in previous videos, many of my stocks I first bought in the 90s, some I held onto, others were trades. Then something happened which caused me to sell out of my positions for a short period of time before I re-established them. It's an interesting story for a future video. That being said, AT&T wasn't one I held before. I've always been a bit tepid to it because of its debt and lack of performance relative to its share price, especially with the DirecTV acquisition, which I didn't agree with. To me, that's a dying industry, and I tend to avoid investing in dying industries unless the time to death is long enough and the return is high enough for long enough that I'd risk taking a position. But I got more interested in AT&T after their Time Warner acquisition, especially after their AppNexus announcement. I also like to have some current yield in my portfolio, and I wanted some exposure into the communications services sector, so I decided to overlook their low cadre and debt issues in favor of what I feel is a stable play with upside potential. I believe AT&T has some incredible assets, but has been performing poorly for quite some time, depressing the stock, and this let me jump into a business that I feel is undervalued with a good amount of upside potential, if they can execute and correct what I see as strategic mistakes. Their recent move shows me that they are doing the right things to correct their course. So my initial lump sum buys were in August of 2018 at $31.75 and then another in February of 2019 at $29.66 as I told myself I would add more to my position if they fell under 30. That's where it would need to fall again to make me consider another deployment of capital beyond my drip. Please watch my 3M video if you are interested in learning my take on lump sum investing versus dollar cost averaging. So what do you think? Are you a bull or a bear on AT&T? Are you going to buy, sell, hold, or keep looking? Okay, let's jump into my portfolio. Okay, so here we are, and we have 18 of the 25 companies incorporated into this pie chart, so there's seven more to go. And so, let's see here. Here is AT&T in the blue, it's 10.5%. And then we see industrials at 19.4%, which are MMM, Leg, and Cat. This one, consumer staples, food, beverages, Coke at 10.2%. The green is consumer discretionary with McDonald's, Starbucks, Home Depot, and Disney at 16.7%. 
Consumer Staples Household, Kimberly Clark and Colgate at 13.6% right here. And then we have utilities at 8% with Southern Company. Energy is this purple slice with Chevron and ExxonMobil at 9.2%. And then we see healthcare is 7% with AbbVie and Pfizer. And financial services is uh, Goldman Sachs and Travelers at 5.4%. And we see I have 2,352 shares of AT&T. It has gone up in the last 365 days, which is why this is green. 17.3 uh, current PE, 10.5 forward PE. Dividend discount model says $14.36 at a 12% return and 33% margin of safety. So this would go a lot higher if I did like an 8% return, which is more reasonable and had no extra margin of safety. So these are things you can tweak, but I just do really aggressive to see what would be theoretically be a good price. We see they're in the communication services sector and they pay an annual dividend of $2.08. They actually just increased their dividend and that's why this is highlighted in green because I have one field that I um, kind of put a manual calculation for dividend and then one that I screen scraped from Finviz, which is why this is highlighted, which means that, that they increased their dividend. So now I can go in there and change my manual version of it to match this to clear the flag. But this is how it kind of highlights me that that they did increase their dividend rather than always staying abreast of the news. Um, but I usually keep it there until it hits the payout date. Uh, dividend pay date is February 3rd. Dividend yield 5.38%, so that's awesome. Three-year dividend cadger is 2.1, which is their five-year, and the 10-year dividend cadger is 2.2%. So the portfolios, average weighted five-year dividend cadger is 7.89%. And then the portfolio's initial starting yield is 3.46%. We see I have $90,881 of AT&T. So that drips $4,892. And so the overall portfolio value for these 18 stocks is $864,979 and it's currently dripping $29,906 a year. Good payout ratio at 58% and 35 years of consecutive dividend increases. And we see the portfolio's average weighted years of increasing dividends is now 38.29 years. So again, that's kind of helpful because that's my, you know, I look at that as like, okay, if I find a, another company I want to invest in, how many years of increasing dividends have they been increasing for? And I, I like to see something around the average. Uh, AT&T's beta is a nice low 0.62. So the average weighted beta of the portfolio is 0.75. Large company at 282 billion market cap. So the portfolio's average weighted market cap is 146.75 billion. And okay, let's jump into the dividends. Now, before showing the dividend checks I've received this last week, I'd like to mention that Pfizer just announced that they are increasing their quarterly dividend by 5.6% payable in March of 2020. We chatted about that fun news in the dividend discord channel this morning and people were pretty stoked. So that means my estimated annual passive income from Pfizer increased from $665 a year to $702 a year, which is another $37 a year. 
So congrats to all my shareholder brothers and sisters who are long on PFE, like I am. Okay, let's take a look at the dividend checks I've received since my 3M video from last week. A bunch came in from 3M, McDonald's, and Coke. I always edit out my account numbers as well as any dividends I've received from stocks I've not yet revealed. As I've mentioned in a previous video, about 60% of my portfolio is in tax-sheltered accounts. I hold 3M in both a tax-sheltered account and a taxable account. So in the last week I received six dividend checks of companies I've revealed. Let's start with 3M. Since I've turned on my drip for 3M, it bought another 4.4 shares of itself, taking me from 525.8 shares to 530.2 shares. So this quarterly dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $25.34 a year. Assuming they don't increase their dividend, then this would mean that just by holding 3M in my accounts, my annual passive income will increase by about $101.38 a year. But it'll be higher than that since it compounds quarterly and because I believe they'll increase it. Now onto McDonald's. Since I've turned on my drip for McDonald's, it bought another 2.53 shares of itself, taking me from 399.97 shares to 402.5 shares. So this quarterly dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $12.65 a year. So assuming they don't increase their dividend, then this would mean that just by holding McDonald's in my accounts, my annual passive income will increase by about $50.60 a year. But it'll be higher than that since it compounds quarterly and because I believe they'll increase it. And then for Coke, since I've turned my trip on for Coke, it bought another 11.84 shares of itself, taking me from 1,610.86 shares to 1,622.7 shares. So this quarterly dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $18.94 a year. Assuming they don't increase their dividend, then this would mean that just by holding Coke in my accounts, my annual passive income will increase by $75.76 a year. But it should be higher than that since it compounds quarterly and since I believe they'll increase it. So from these three companies, my overall annual estimated passive income just got increased by about $56.93 a year just for this quarter's payout. Let's see how this looks in the spreadsheet. Okay, so here is a copy of my dividend spreadsheet for December. I've blacked out some of the some of the stock that I haven't revealed yet. So here are the 3M dividend checks for $744.19 and the McDonald's dividend checks for $499.90 and the Coke dividend checks for $644.36. So so far this month I've received checks for $3,644 for the ones I've revealed. And then we see that still coming are Home Depot, Disney, Goldman Sachs, and Travelers. Please don't forget to hit the thumbs up button and leave a comment, including your partner number, the simple way to thank me for the steep analysis video of AT&T. Adding your partner number to your comment helps me be able to then do shout outs and visual acknowledgements of my subscribers who've watched and commented on most of my videos. So with this 18T video, I'm partner number 25 because I've watched and commented on all my videos from start to end. Thanks, and I'll see you in the next video. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me after you completely understand it. So I'll see you in the next video, and remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, 
keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably, and win. I know you can do it. Just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like, and bell icons, share this video with others, and comment below.